Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you come to us as we open the Bible, Scripture, your word, come to us to meet us as we are, and then work in us to bring us to who you want us to be for the good of our lives, for the good of our community, for the good of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Sounds good. (laughs) On Friday night, uh, the, the brown troop traipsed over to the Dow Center on Hope's campus to witness the opening ceremonies of the 2019 version of Dance Marathon. Uh, The Dow Center is a a large gymnasium, three basketball courts wide, and Dance Marathon is a a national fundraising event to raise support for children's hospitals across the country, in our case, Helen DeVos Children's Hospital. we got there eager to see college students dancing. I might actually refer to it more as flailing uh, than actual dancing. Uh, apparently, uh, Hope College hosts one of the largest dance marathons in the country. They raised yesterday $344,000. 1,088 students were involved over the course of the last 20 years. Hope students have raised over $3 million to support younger ones and their families who have been presented with some of the most difficult health challenges imaginable. So we were there at about 7 o'clock to witness the opening ceremonies. One of the courts was covered in bouncy houses and ping pong tables. The center court was packed with college students and a big stage and a screen. And then the third court seemed to be like, like aid stations for any of the college students who needed a little help uh, throughout the night. Many of the students will stay up all night, all, from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday, dancing. Not all of them, but plenty of them stay up all night long dancing. Uh, as, as the opening ceremonies were beginning, uh, they, they paraded some of the, the families who were being supported across the stage, the miracle families, they're called, uh, Evan and uh, Hadley and Tinley and Ella and Mia, our Mia Baraducci, and Jonathan, our Jonathan McMullen, and they were, they were given the mic and they were, uh, they were introduced. And ev- mostly it was the moms who did the introducing, occasionally it was the dads, and once in a while it was one of the miracle children. And every time a miracle child was introduced, the college students absolutely erupted with applause and cheering. It registered on the Richter scale a few times. Uh, Jonathan introduced himself, he, he, he started stuttered it out. He got it out, Jonathan, and the place went ballistic. Uh, It was so cool. Dance Marathon is crazy. Dance Marathon is awesome. It, It taps into every emotion I think the human can have. College students and community and miracle families. It's so beautiful. Uh, We'll pretty much do anything for our kids 
Am I right? We'll, we'll pretty much do whatever it takes for our children. Uh, so, I want you to listen. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for you to have a, a great millstone fastened around your neck and drowned in the depths of the seas. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. In heaven, their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go find the one that went astray? And if he finds it, I tell you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. It is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these children should be lost. If a member of the church sins against you, go to that one and point out the fault while, while the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. If you are not listened to, bring one or two others so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If, if the member will not listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender will not even listen to the church, let such a one be as a tax collector or Gentile to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if two of you agree about anything on earth, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And then Peter came and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive? As many as seven times? 
And Jesus said, not seven times, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And as he could not pay, the, the, the Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions so the debt could be paid. But he fell on his knees saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. That same slave, as he went out, came across one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the neck, he said, pay what you owe. And he fell on his knees and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me, I'll pay you. And he refused. And he went and had him thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the Lord what had taken place. And, and the Lord summoned the slave and said, you wicked slave. Did I not forgive you the entire debt because you pleaded with me? Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And he handed him over to be tormented until he could pay the debt. So, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you who does not forgive a brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. It started out so good, didn't it? Let's talk about the kids. We love the kids. We'll do anything for the kids. But then it took that turn, that hard right. I don't even really want to repeat it, the stuff about so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. I want to focus on a single verse with you this morning. It, it will serve as the refrain for our Lenten season together and the focus of the morning. Unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become like children, Unless you change, here's the thing, here's the deal. Let's just cut to the chase. The gospel of Christ repeatedly and consistently calls us to change. The Christian faith is not meant to sanctify all of your thoughts, all of your feelings, all of your actions. You're called to change. Change. Unless you change. It's fascinating to me. He's talking to the disciples. The, the disciples who have been, been with him, they've been walking with him, they've been talking with him, they've been eating the same food and sleeping in the same places. If anybody has ever been nearer my God to thee, it's the disciples. And these disciples, they miss it. They miss the point. They're always missing the point. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Tell us who's the best, Jesus. And Jesus says, unless you change. Change. Uh, there's a couple of words in the New Testament for change. One of them is metanoia, which is the word translated repent. Uh, stop thinking a certain way and so behaving a certain way and start thinking differently and so behaving differently. That's not this word. 
This word is turn, 180, about face, stop, turn around, unless you change. I was driving down the road the other day, doing what I do best, daydreaming, probably thinking about a sermon for all of you, and I actually, when I sort of woke up from my daydreaming, I forgot where I was trying to go, and when I realized where I was trying to go, I also realized I was miles past it. So I pulled over, stopped the car, three-point turn, and went the other way. Change. Unless you change. And become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what needs to change? What do you need to stop doing? And go the other way. I mean, I'd love to pat you all on the back and say, great job, good work, keep it up. But apparently the gospel of Christ says more than once, 21 times this word is used and 34 times the word repent is used, change. So this is the season of Lent. Provides for us a wonderful opportunity to take inventory of our lives and what needs to go. Uh, Throughout history, uh, Fasting has been associated with Lent, uh, stopping from doing certain things. And along the way, it kind of became associated with sort of, sort of sober realities of, and sadness, you know, paying your punishment for your participation in Christ's crucifixion, which wasn't really the original intention. The word Lent means spring. Spring, like when the snow finally melts and stays melted. Spring, when we no longer hunch over trying to protect ourselves from the, from the elements, but open ourselves to the light of day. Spring, Lent, making way for life. Change in order to make a way for life. Not a punishment, but an opportunity. So, so what needs to change? I mean, you don't have to answer me now, but I'd love for you to consider yourself. What needs to change? Do you drink too much? Are, do you gossip? Are you selfish? Do you hold on to some bitterness? Have you gone the way of, of, of the cultural expectations of greatness, reducing your life to what you're worth and how much you have and who you know? Change. It's going to be a great Lent, isn't it? Unless you change and become. Notice it's not unless you change and do, unless you change and act, unless you change and behave. This is not merely about behavior modification, but behavior modification for life transformation. I read somewhere recently that actually the power of habit changes the neural pathways in your brain. Like when you do something over and over and over, you actually change? Your, your biology shifts? Are any scientists, is, am I right? Is this right? Is this right? It, you change. You, am I Dr. Tverberg, my biology prop, am I right? The power of habit actually changes who you are unless you change and become. Not simply behavior modification, but life transformation. 
Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's so good, I'm going to say it again. Eugene Peterson uh, likens the Christian faith to the grammatical structure of verbs. You remember this? The active verb, the uh, active voice, passive voice, and middle voice. The active voice is I counsel. I am the subject of the verb. The passive voice, I am being counseled. I'm the object of the verb. And then he he suggests that's kind of where Christians tend to locate themselves. Either it's all up to me, I'll get it done. If I don't do it, nobody will. Or it's passive. Yeah, God's in control. God's got it. God will do it. Passive. Peterson suggests the Christian faith exists in the middle voice, where you are both subject and object. You're both actor and acted upon. What tense do you suppose this verb becomes is? Take a wild guess. I've set you up for this. Middle. God is interested in remaking you, and he wants your participation, your involvement. Not sit back and let God do it, but get in on what God is going to do. I like these lines from C.S. Lewis. Have you heard of C.S. Lewis? God said in the Bible that we were gods, and he's going to make good on his word if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose. He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we're in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Unless you change and become The beauty, the beauty of God, he, he meets us as we are. However you are, sad, worried, anxious, lonely, broken, he meets us as we are. He's so gracious, but never leaves us as we are unless you change and become. Become like children. What do you suppose that means? Clearly, we're not going to get shorter. I mean, I suppose eventually we all kind of start getting shorter, but not, he's not, we're not meant to get clumsier and weaker unless you change and become like children. What do you suppose? The faith of a child, we like to say, maybe. The wonder of a little one, I suppose, possibly. The trust of a younger one, probably. Unless you change and become like children, he goes on to clarify more of what he means. Whoever becomes humble like this child, we think of humility in terms of an attitude. I'll think less of myself and maybe not as highly of myself as, or don't think of highly of ourselves as we might otherwise think. Humility. C.S. Lewis says, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I think that's probably helpful. That's not exactly what Jesus has in mind. Jesus has a disposition in mind, not an attitude. A disposition of dependence. Become like a child, utterly dependent. Become like a child. Recognizing your very next breath is an act of charity. Your existence is a gift. The next moment is offered to you. You are dependent. Become like a child. And then he goes on this long talk of forgiveness, which ends so harshly. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive. 
What's the relationship between children and forgiveness? Maybe it's just a random collection of sayings that's happened before in the Gospels. Maybe there is no connection. Or or maybe there's something, maybe there's something about children and forgiveness. Maybe they're more prone to forgive. Maybe not my kids so much, but other kids probably. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe as Jesus was talking about stumbling blocks, he, he wants to make sure we forgive so that we're not a stumbling block to the younger ones. Or, or maybe, maybe if a younger one goes astray, Christ says, forgive, 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 77 times. There seems to be a relationship to becoming like children and forgiveness. The utter dependency of a child is the disposition of our lives. We are utterly dependent on a gracious God to forgive, so forgive. Unless you change and become like children. I was friended on Facebook this week by Sarah Sanderson. She lives out in Washington, D.C., doing some really important stuff, I'm sure. Her dad uh, was my eighth-grade physical science teacher. Have I mentioned this to you? Uh, Mr. Sanderson. Uh, one, one day in eighth grade, for some reason, I'm not exactly sure now, me and a few of my classmates were taken out of class and uh, transported to Camp Geneva where there was some sort of conference that we enjoyed. And we missed Mr. Sanderson's eighth grade physical science test, which we were very happy to miss. <laughs> Except the next day we had to take it. So me and Ryan Harms and a couple of others made our way down. Do you remember Ryan Harms? Made our way down uh, to the library where we sat in these library carousels with wooden screens preventing us from seeing each other. I was, I was ripping through this thing, man. I, I was acing this test. I got to test question 16, and I wasn't quite sure. I don't remember the question, but I remember now the answer is Galileo. So I skipped it. I went through the rest of the test, and then, you know, good test-taking technique. Skip the one you don't know, finish the rest, and then come back to it, and I couldn't get it. I was stuck. I was stumped. I'm a, I'm, I'm a three on the Enneagram. I need to achieve. I need to get 100%. So I leaned over to Ryan and whispered, hey, Ryan, what'd you get for 16? He's like, Galileo. So I scribbled it down, went back to Mr. Sanderson's class, handed him the test, went home that day and felt terrible. Stayed up all night. It was probably 10 or 11, but it felt like two or three. Couldn't sleep, so I went upstairs to my mom and dad. I shook my dad's foot. He said, hey, buddy, what's up? My mom got up. She said, are you okay, Johnny? I told him. They said, well, what do you think you should do? I was silent. They said, do you think you should tell Mr. Sanderson? I was thinking to myself, no. (laughs) Their question felt more like a statement, though. So I said, yes. So the next morning, I woke up early, meandered down the hallways of of the middle school to Mr. Sanderson's class, found him, told him what I had done. He he filed through his folder and found my test, 94%. He took out a red pen crossed off the 94, went down to test question 16, ran his red marker through it, and then he looked at me with what I I thought was sad eyes, and he said, thank you for telling me. 
you're forgiven. And he changed my 94 to a 93, my A to an A minus. Unless you change and become like children, we'll do anything for our kids. You know what I mean? We'll do whatever it takes for our kids. Should you not also show mercy as I have shown you mercy? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And here at the table, we see mercy. We taste forgiveness. Pray with me, please. Gracious God, we are utterly dependent on you. We're like children. We are in desperate need of your life-giving power for life and faith. We're in desperate need of your kindness and goodness and mercy and forgiveness to make it through life. You've shown us the fullness of your love by sending Jesus Christ into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to God's law and to forgive us when we don't. Thank you, Christ, for reconciling us to you. So with, with your whole church, all Christians in all places, we worship and adore your glorious name, singing together. Holy, holy, holy Lord, O God of power, O Lord of might, your glory fills all earth and heaven. Remember at this table the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. And in the joy of his resurrection and the expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves as holy and living sacrifices. Send your spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be to us communion with the ever-gracious, forgiving Christ. And even as the grain has been gathered from many fields and the grapes from many hills, so would you also gather your people from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.